Let's get into the message for today. And we are going to be in John chapter 4. verses 1 through 30. And uh, let me read first, as we usually do, and then we'll, we'll swing back around. <clears throat> it says this. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Oh, I'm controlling. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, 
What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. This is God's word. Let's go back here. And when we look at these um, first few verses here, uh, when it says that Jesus heard that the Pharisees learned that his disciples were baptizing more people than John the Baptist and his disciples, and his disciples Jesus left that area. Now, he, he probably did this because he realized that you know, if John the Baptist was on the radar of the Pharisees, and, and then he was certainly going to become on their radar as well, and that was going to lead to some type of clash some type of confrontation, and um, it just wasn't the time for that. It wasn't the time for that in God's sovereign plan. So Jesus decided to leave that area. He left Galilee, which was in the northern area where the Jews um, lived, and, um, uh, oh, I'm sorry, he left Judea in the south, the Jerusalem area, and then he went up north towards Galilee. Now, the, the interesting thing here, things get interesting when it says in verse four, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, to give a little bit of background about this, now I know this is not the easiest thing to see here, but in the south you have Judea, and up in the north you have Galilee. These are both areas populated by Jews, by by the people of Israel, so to speak. In that middle area is an area called Samaria. Now, Samaria is inhabited by the Samaritans. Now, who were the Samaritans? So we got to go, go way back into the Old Testament. Now, if you remember, the people of Israel, there was a um, civil war and uh, a, a dichotomizing of the people of Israel into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, if you remember this, in the time of uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, right, after Solomon. So the kingdom of Israel broke into two. And the northern kingdom was called Israel, went by the name Israel, and the southern kingdom was known popularly as Judah. So these are two separate areas. Uh, Omri was one of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, and he named the capital of Israel Samaria. That was the capital of the northern kingdom. This capital's name, Samaria, eventually you know, the, the area around the capital became, called, became known as Samaria. Eventually, the entire northern kingdom was just kind of known as Samaria for shorthand. So they just referred to the northern kingdom as Samaria. Now, around 722, 721 BC, the Assyrian Empire came down and conquered the northern kingdom. They conquered the northern kingdom. And they deported thousands, tens of thousands of the people of Israel into the Assyrian lands, and then they replaced the people there with people from all over the place, all over the Assyrian empire. And the reason they did this was to dilute the people of Israel there, right? You take away people who might be very mad that you conquered them, who might be trying to, you know, foment a rebellion and and gain their freedom, and you bring in people from other parts of the, the empire who are not that interested in fighting against the king of Assyria, you dilute the people there. So you remove thousands of them, you you scatter them and you bring other people in. That's what the king of Assyria did. And what happened over hundreds of years is that these people intermarried. They intermarried. Now, intermarriage was something that was not supposed to happen in the Old Testament. 
The people of Israel were meant to be a living metaphor for the kingdom of God. And God told them, do not intermarry. So they, but they did intermarry. And their religion, which was supposed to be the, uh, the same as the people of Judah, uh, you know, trust, uh, worshiping God, according to the Old Testament, also got influenced by the religions that were brought in from these other peoples all over the place. So there was a lot of mixing. And, and what happened was the people in the South, in Judah, and also Jewish populations that stayed pure, so to speak, up in the North, like Galilee, they viewed the Samaritans as sellouts, as sellouts, as people who intermarried, as people who uh, diluted their religion, and they did not look highly upon them at all. In fact, at one point, when in John chapter eight, when they were talking about Jesus, they said to Jesus, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So Samaritan became like a bad word. They would call somebody a Samaritan was like saying like, you're like a dog or it was like an insult. So let's say that these were not friendly relations between these two people groups, right? So what would happen is you see here in the orange or the reddish color, Jesus and his disciples go from the south, Jerusalem, up north, and they stop in this city of Sychar in Samaritan territory, in Samaria, and then they make their way on up to Galilee. Now, those who were very, very strict about, um, uh, about Judaism, uh, uh, Pharisees, religious leaders, they were more likely, if you were really, really strict, you actually may be willing to take this really long, roundabout, circuitous route around Samaria. And you would literally cross the Jordan River, go up the other side, and loop back in. This is like the most, you know, like when you see, when you're walking down the street and some unsavory characters like are walking down towards you and you kind of cross over to the other side of the street, this is the most extreme version of that possible. <laughs> They crossed half their country. They crossed a river to avoid this neighborhood. Now, some, some people have, have, I think, made too big of a deal out of this. And they've said, like, oh, no one would ever go through Samaritan country. That's, that's not true. That's not true. Probably the more, the more zealous or religious you were, like a Pharisee, you might be willing to do this. But lots of people actually went through Samaritan territory. Uh, Josephus the Jewish, um, the, uh, Jewish historian, he wrote this. He said, um, it was the custom of the Galileans, the Jews up north, when they came to the holy city at the festivals, meaning when they went down to Jerusalem for Passover, Feast of Tabernacles, these different three times a year when all the men had to go, um, it was their custom to take their journeys through the country of the Samaritans. So people did it. <laughs> because it only took three days to go through Samaria, right? If you're really zealous, you might go around there. But a lot of people are like, ah, you know what? It's, let's save the time. Let's save the time. But they probably did not really like the idea of mingling with the Samaritans. They probably tried to keep their distance and just kind of pass through. It still wasn't a preferred place to be. Now, now that does, and so what some people have said is like, oh my gosh, look at Jesus. He, he had to go through Samaria. He was compelled to go there because of this Samaritan woman. I wouldn't say it's this strong, like nobody went through Samaria. But I do think it doesn't take away from the fact that Jesus specifically does go to Samaria for the purpose, I believe, 
of meeting the Samaritan woman by the well. There is something special about what he's doing here. He goes through Samaria. He went through, according to the plan of God, in order to make this um, divine appointment with this Samaritan woman. And I believe that God is trying to tell us something. And John catches on to this in his gospel. That, that what, what's happening here is that there is this contrast that is being set up. We look in chapter 3, and you see on the left here a person representing Nicodemus. If you're here the past few weeks, Jesus had this encounter with Nicodemus. Who was Nicodemus? He was a Jew. He was a male. He was a Pharisee, very strict religious person. He calls him a ruler. He was a ruler, probably means he was in the Sanhedrin, which is like the ruling body of the Jewish people. So he is respected. He is extremely theologically trained. He is orthodox. He was learned. He was a powerful person, extremely powerful person. On the other hand, you have the Samaritan woman, somebody that any self-respecting Jew would not want to go and talk with. Not only that, she was a woman, she, uh, who was, and women did not have the same rights as men 2,000 years ago. It was a much more difficult situation to be a woman in society than it was to be a man at that time. Nicodemus is named. Her name isn't even mentioned. She has no formal theological schooling. She has no influence. Her theology is off because the Samaritans were off. And she came out to draw water at noon, I think, because she was an outcast in her society. Nobody goes to get water at noon in the Middle East. That is the hottest time of day, noon. And, and we're talking about walking from the village to the well, however far that is, I don't know, quarter of a mile, half a mile, carrying some type of cistern or jar, maybe balancing on your head, bringing a bucket with you, a rope to throw down there 100 feet and pull water out again and again and again in the blazing noonday sun to fill that thing of water up and to carry it back to your village. Who would do that? Who would do that at noon in the middle of the day? I grow tomatoes in my backyard. I don't even want to pick them at noon. I don't. I go pick them at like 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock in the cool of the day. I'm weak sauce. I, I, I may want that sweet cherry tomato, but I'll, I'll wait a few hours. It's hot outside. Bay Area hot, please. Uh, it, you know, she went out there and why? Because she probably had some social issues and was an outcast in that society. How different is this of a picture than Nicodemus? What is the Bible trying to tell us? What is, jo what is John trying to tell us? That it doesn't matter who you are, both of these people, Nicodemus or the unnamed Samaritan woman, they both needed Jesus. And Jesus would overcome any type of social norms, uh, it, it, he would break religious taboos in order to go and talk to this woman because everybody needs Jesus. In the, it's like, you know, in our Bay Area equivalent, Jesus would sit down and, and he'll sit down and he'll talk with the, the, the tech titan, billionaire, powerful person, industry, captain of industry here in the Bay Area. 
And he would also go into the homeless encampment and sit down with the person with no home, not able to make ends meet, living out on the streets, because both of these people need Jesus just as much as the other. The billionaire just as much as the homeless person. This is what John is telling us here, this contrast that he is setting up. It doesn't matter who you are in this world, you need what Jesus has to offer. So he, he, he camps out at this well. It's Jacob's well. You can go back to Genesis 48 if you want to read about that. Jacob um, dug this well. He gave it as an inheritance to uh, that land and the well where that was to his son Joseph. And, and this is where Jesus stopped. It was hot. Jesus was weary from his travel. And he saw this woman and he said to her, give me a drink. Now, this social background comes into play now, right? This woman says, how, what? You know, she probably sees him and is probably like trying to keep her distance. It's kind of weird. She could tell by the way he's dressed or whatnot that he's, he's not from there. He's not a Samaritan. He's a Jew. And now he's asking her for a drink. And she's like, how, hey, buddy, listen, in case you didn't get the memo, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? This is a social faux pas. You shouldn't be doing that. We don't have relationships between our peoples. And then Jesus says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He would have given you living water. The gift of God is the gift of God, of the son of God. God the Father giving his son Jesus to die upon a cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven, so that we can have true life. We can have a relationship with God so that we can drink from this living water. That is what this water symbolizes, not earthly water, not things of this world that can't really satisfy, but water from God that quenches our thirst in a way that nothing in this world can, that can only come through a relationship with God by believing in his son, Jesus. That is the only way to get this living water. This is talked about over and over again in the Old Testament. We see this imagery. Ezekiel, when he prophesies, he says, and wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish for this water goes there and the waters of the sea become, may become fresh so that everything will live wherever the river goes. And this Old Testament imagery that says that one day God would provide this type of, of water, this work of the spirit that will go and be like water that just refreshes and brings life wherever it goes. That's going to happen one day. That's coming one day. That's living water. Later in chapter seven, Jesus, and we'll get to this in a few weeks, said about himself, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus says to her, hey, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew who I was, listen, you should be asking me for water. I would give you living water. But this woman doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. And it's ironic. She says, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. Where's your bucket? Where's your rope? We're here at the well, but you didn't show up with the supplies that you need in order to get water. Where are you going to get this 
quote-unquote, living water. I mean, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well. He gave us a well. You don't even have a bucket. Who are you, man? Who are you? What's this living water that you're talking about? Wrong on two counts, right? First, Jesus is not talking about physical water. And second, how ironic, yes, he is so much greater than your father Jacob. He doesn't have a bucket to give you water. He's he's the creator of the universe. He made H2O, lady. He made H2O. Let there be oceans. That was Jesus doing that, creating water. Man, did this woman not realize who she was talking to. She doesn't understand this. Jesus comes back at her again. And she say, he says, everyone who drinks of this water, I imagine him pointing to that well, pointing to Jacob's well. Anybody who drinks this water will become thirsty again. But anyone who ever drinks the water that I give, this living water, will never be thirsty again. In fact, this water, this water that I give will become in him a spring of water, a source of water, a reservoir within you, welling up to eternal life. Wow, that is some water. Don't you want that water? I want that water. I'm from New York. I thought New York water was good. That's why the bagels are good. But Jesus, this water that Jesus offers is something completely different that will well up to eternal life, that you will never be thirsty again. It will become an an, an, um, inexhaustible source of living water within you. Ah, what an offer. What does the woman say? Sir, give me this water. That sounds great. I want that so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This woman just does not understand what Jesus is talking about. They were not on the same page. It was like, it's like Jesus, Jesus, you know, it's like living water, water, living water, water. Living water, yes, water, right back and forth. They're just not on the same page over and over and over again. But she says something really strange here. If we really stop and we think about this, she says to him, look at her response in verse 15. Sir, give me this water, this water that you're talking about, that she thinks is some type of physical H2O, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. What? What? It, it sounds like she's saying that she believes that Jesus can give him her water so that she like stays permanently hydrated. Is what it sounds like she's saying. Is that it, 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 what, what is going on in her mind at this point? Give me this water so I won't be thirsty. You have to come here to drink water. Some theologians have said, oh, she thought Jesus meant another source of water somewhere else. I just don't think it means that. Jesus is a Jew. He's not from that area. How could he know about water anywhere else? And if there's water somewhere else, she's still going to have to go and she's still going to have to carry it. She's still going to have to go get that water. And, And she says, 
Give me this water so that I won't be thirsty again. We cannot avoid that. We cannot avoid that. She says, give me this water so I won't be thirsty. I'll be permanently hydrated. I will never need to drink again. And we look at that, we say, this, this woman's weird. This woman's weird. Who, who would believe that? It's kind of like magic, like witchcraft, voodoo type thing, right? What a naive, primitive person thinking that somehow this person could give her water that would quench her thirst so that she would never need to drink again. This woman actually believed that there was physical water that would permanently quench her thirst. How ridiculous. How ridiculous. But what God would say to us this morning is if you think that's ridiculous, do you, are you like this woman? Do you believe that there are things in this world that will ultimately satisfy you? Do you believe that there are things in this world that if you could just have that, you would be satisfied. Your life would be complete. You would never thirst again. How foolish. Jesus is the source of living water. And nothing, nothing else in this world will be able to quench this thirst. How often are we tempted to believe, and maybe some of us right now do believe, that there's something that you're chasing, that you believe if you can just have these things, your life will be satisfied, your life will be complete. And Jesus would say, that's like chasing a mirage. You're hungry, you're thirsty. You see this pool of water in the desert. You think that that is going to satisfy you and you chase it, you pursue it, you run after it. And when you get there and you drink of it, all you end up with is a mouth full of sand. That's what you get at the end. There are people in this world. People in this world all believe this. That if I could just have certain things, I will be satisfied. I, I've shared this before, but money, money is certainly one of those things that we chase and we think, oh, if I just had more money, money makes the world go around. Money will solve my problems. I want to read to you. I've read this before in the past few years ago, but I think it's so, so fitting. This was a, um, a review on blind under a tech industry. And this is where people talk about what their job is like. This is from somebody in LinkedIn, not named Lisa, uh, you know, somebody else, I'm sure. It says, spouse and I earn, it's entitled $1 million total compensation, but no happiness. That's the title. Uh, spouse and I earn a million yearly. We are 35 years old with two kids. Happiness besides kids is barely existent. Stuck in a rut and can't get out. We got a starter home in the East Bay in original condition in 2017. Too much and too antique to continue living here. Anything half decent that's 2,000 plus square feet in a good school district is $2 million plus. 
Our way of, that was, that was just a few years ago, okay? <laughs> our way of life makes it impossible to get ourselves to spend this much money. Our social life is here. So moving to a place like Seattle or Austin is not an option. Some of you are like, darn. Not to mention sunshine is very important for our mental health. To get a taste of, quote, money buys happiness, end quote, I started to buy expensive things, car, TV, gadgets, but it was useless. No time to buy experiences. After kids, I have far less motivation and passion for work. A lot of my mental energy is spent on them, so I have less to offer at work, so promotion and career progression are leap years away. Changing jobs and meeting expectations is nearly impossible. That's the end. Dude, did you talk about LinkedIn? <laughs> Somebody's just venting, I think. That's sad. That's, that's so true, though, isn't it? That's so true. Million dollars, total compensation, but no happiness. Money doesn't buy happiness. And you say, oh, million dollars. Of course that's not going to buy happiness. <laughs> In the Bay Area? One million a year? Are you kidding me? That's, that's Bush League, man. Million dollars. I, I read this article years ago, too. I think it's an excerpt from Atlantic Monthly. It's called The Secret Fears of the Super Rich. Keep in mind, this article is from 2011, okay? Adjusted for massive inflation. <laughs> A survey of 120 people worth $25 million or more. What's that today? 37, 40, I don't know. Says this, the respondents turn out to be a generally dissatisfied lot whose money has contributed to deep anxieties involving love, work, and family. Indeed, they are frequently dissatisfied even with their sizable fortunes. Most of them still do not consider themselves financially secure. For that, they say, they would require on average one quarter more wealth than they currently possess. So I, basically they're saying, I need at least 7.5 million more, and then I will feel okay. Does it end? Does it end? Can money really quench your thirst, what you really need in life? It can't. It doesn't. Maybe, maybe you feel like you're, you're on this you know, never-ending quest for entertainment. And you constantly fill your life with entertainment. Binge watching shows, playing video games for hours on end, going on vacations and traveling, seeing the world. Despite all of these distractions and entertainment and experiences, that doesn't fulfill you. I don't think you would look at yourself and say, I feel complete now that I've finished Tears of the Kingdom. Man, my life is, is, is complete. That is an accomplishment, but your life is not complete. Maybe you think love. You know, if, if, I, if I can just find somebody that really loves me and that I love, all oh, my life will be complete. I used to be such a hopeless romantic. I used to listen to sad Japanese romance music that I didn't understand when I was depressed because some girl didn't like me. That was me sitting on the train, listening to this sad music I didn't know, and just, just anyways, yeah, that's, don't pity me. I used to think, if I just find somebody who loves me and who I can love, I will have everything I need. And maybe that's you. And so you are like on dating app burnout right now, right? Just date after date after date. And you think you find that person and your life is going to, be, your life is going to become complete. Ask, ask anyone who's been married for like 10 years. 
Ask them, does, does being married fulfill your deepest desires and make your life complete? If they're honest, they will say no. Go ask my wife. Go ahead. Ask her. It's okay. <laughs> I don't mind. She will tell you, heck no. Heck no. That, that man's great, I hope. But no, no. He doesn't satisfy my deepest need and neither does she for me. Marriage doesn't do it because we were made for more than marriage. You think, oh, kids, if I just have that family that I've always dreamed of, that will make my life complete. If you, friends, if you put your source of happiness in, in your kids, you know what you're going to do? You are going to, you're going to try to control their lives because they are your happiness and they're going to end up resenting you. Like some of you may be able to relate with that in terms of how you feel about your own parents when you become their source of happiness. And guess what? Your kids in their cute little onesie or toddler or whatever, one day they're going to become a teenager. One day they're going to learn how to drive. They're going to leave home. They're going to break your heart. And guess what? They're not going to call. Or not as much as you want them to, probably. And if you put all your meaning and hope in your kids, guess what too? Once your kids leave the home, you realize you never knew how to have a relationship with your spouse. Your life was all about your kids. You don't know how to have a relationship there. And you find your marriage in crisis. True happiness will not come from your kids. Maybe you feel like, hey, if I just can gain the respect of people, so you seek approval. You seek the praise of others. You chase success, accomplishment, so that others will praise you, say that you are successful, you are somebody. You constantly try to, try to change yourself to fit into the social norms of different social groups so that, so that you'll, be, you'll be accepted. And so you become successful. People praise you. You're accepted in groups. You become popular. And then you end up feeling lost and disconnected from who you are as a person. And you end up constantly anxious and stressed out about maintaining a certain image and how people see you. Fearful that if you lose that, you will lose your sense of worth as a person. Friends, there is no water in this world that will truly fill you or satisfy you this woman thought, if I, if, I could just, if I could just get this, whatever this water is that this man's talking about, I could change my life. I don't have to deal with social embarrassment. I can come to the well. I could get water. I don't have to come here. I don't have to come here when there are other people and they laugh at me and they gossip about me. I don't need to come to this well when it's so hot and blazing and I suffer just to get water that I need to do every day. I don't need to do this. I don't need to do this. If, 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 if I could get this thing and it changes my situation, my life will be so much better. If I've just changed my situation, ah, my thirst will be quenched. She says, no, no, no. Even if, even if I, I gave you the future and I gave you running water in your home, that's not going to satisfy you. There will still be this emptiness within you. This woman does not understand. They're talking right past each other. So at this point, Jesus may, you know, may say, well, I tried. 
It, you know, if I were talking to somebody and I was trying to share with them about Jesus, I could certainly at this point say, I gave, gave it my effort. I gave it a good effort. I guess this person's not willing to listen. You know, I tried. I tried God. What does Jesus do here? He says to her, go call your husband and come here. That's interesting. Why? What an interesting change of, of subject. The woman says to him, she said to him, I have no husband. Oh, you're single, you know? No, this is a setup. This is a setup by Jesus. Jesus says to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus here um, sets this woman up. And when she says, I have no husband, he says to her, that's very right. In fact, you've had five. And the person you're with now is not your husband. This is why this woman was coming to the well at noon. Now, we don't exactly know why she was in this situation, why she was laughed at, why she was despised in society. Some people say, well, it's because she was a harlot. She lived this adulterous lifestyle going from man to man to man to man. And now look at her. She's living with somebody who's not her husband. She's in fornication. She's in sin. And and that's why people talk about her. Look at her. Other people say, no, no, no. She was taken advantage of. She's been kicked around, uh, you know, kicked around, you know, by people, men divorcing her because of, of silly reasons. And then nobody wanted her anymore. She became damaged goods and she got passed around person to person and nobody wanted her. Maybe this man now says, oh, you could come and live with me. You could be my concubine or something. And she'd been battered and, and bruised by society. I don't know. We don't know what it is. But I think whatever it was, the end result is the same. She was gossiped about. She was talked about. She was laughed at, sneered at. She was looked down upon. And she came out to this well at noon. The end result is the same. She was in a place of brokenness. She was in a place of disappointment at the way that her life had turned out. And Jesus here reads her mail. He exposes this. Now, was Jesus trying to be cruel here? Like, hey, let me show you a party trick. I could tell you all your dirty laundry. Like, no, 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 Jesus. Let's, let's, play, let's play code names instead, right? Let's play a different game. It's like, why is Jesus doing this? Is he, is he being cruel to this woman? No, he's not, he's not being cruel. He loves her so much. He came out of his way through Samaria to meet her because he loved her and he did not want her to go on in her life thinking, There's still something out there in this world that can make your life better or complete, that can make you happy. So what does he do? He puts his finger on the brokenness in her life. He points it out and says, look, look at this brokenness in your life. Look at where you are now. This is the world that we live in. It is filled with this type of brokenness and disappointment and pain and that's, that's all the world can give you, physical water. But you need something deeper than that, something that only living water can fill. Brothers and sisters, and, 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 and I believe that this morning when we look at this passage, 
What, what God would say to us is stop looking in other places. Look at your life right now. Examine, do a deep dive into your heart. Are you trying to fill it with anything else except the living water of God? Except with the love of God? Except with the intimacy and, 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 the, and the fullness that comes from knowing that you are a child of God and your sins are forgiven? If you are, there is a hole in your heart. There is a hole in your soul. Be aware of your brokenness, of the emptiness of this. It does not satisfy you. It's like Sprite. What's their logo, motto? Obey your thirst, right? That's what the world tells you. Obey your thirst. Chase it. Fill it. You'll fill it somehow. Jesus says, no. Your thirst for the things of this world will not fill you. Only living water can do that. This is, this is sneaky, right? Brothers and sisters, even as Christians... Those of us who have come and have drunk from the, the well of living water, the source of living water, those who have, who have put our faith in Christ and become children of God, there is still this daily temptation to instead believe that things in this world will truly make us happy. Like the hymn, Lord, my heart is prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love, Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. It's prone to wander. We're prone to do that. There's, there's, for each of us, there, there are different holes in our heart. The, the different scars that we've taken along the way with us throughout our lives. That if we're not careful, those things we will try to fill. Because we're so desperate to fill them because of our experiences and who we are. We'll try to fill them with the things of this world. For me, I try to, that whole is, is approval. Is, is people approving of me. People thinking that I'm somebody. People saying, Ulysses, you are worthy. You are a valuable person. One of the reasons I, I struggle with that is because I did not get that type of approval from my father. And I know I've, I've shared this, about this before. Maybe you're like, oh, he's talking about his dad again. I'm sorry, I'm the pastor. So you're going to have to listen to me, my story, my life. One day when you preach up here, you can tell about your story. But that's, that's what it is for me. My dad was a, you know, he was faithful to my mom. He worked really hard. He worked in the post office 30 years to make ends meet so that we could have a roof over our heads, three square meals a day, or more in my case, maybe four or five. I have photos to prove it. Um, <laughs> pay for college. Gave us all those things. Can't complain. But... He was not very communicative. He was not very affectionate. He was not the type to give hugs or to say that I love you. And so there was this void in my heart, this emotional void, wanting approval, wanting somebody to say, Ulysses, you're valuable. I love you. It doesn't matter what grade you got. It doesn't matter what school you got. It doesn't matter how you did in this or that. I love you. I love you. Didn't have that. So I look for that. I would crave that in trying to get it through success or accomplishments from people. People saying, you're somebody. You're valuable. After I became a Christian in high school, you know, my life changed. But this hole in my heart still needed plugging. There was still this temptation to believe 
that my value could be affirmed by this world. When I became a Christian, I became a Christian through a big retreat out in Long Island, New York, where all these youth kids came together. That's where I became a Christian. And at this retreat, they had something called Variety Night, where they would do skits and games, and the youth would go and watch it. It was so fun. Loved it. After I became a Christian, they asked me and my church, hey, could you guys do the Variety Night? And so we had to come up with these skits and games and stuff. And let me tell you something. We were so good. We were rock stars at making skits. They were so good, the adults would sneak out of the adult meeting at night and come to the youth meeting to watch our programs. Lights, camera, action, movie, latest movies, soundtrack, using spoofs on the latest parodies and everything. It was so good. It was so good. I got a lot of praise for that. Me and a few of my friends, we were known as like, oh, the skit guys. We were popular. We were, that sounds really corny, the skit guys. We were really popular. We got praise. And, and I loved it. I ate it up. I ate it up because it was one of the earlier times in my life where I got a lot of praise, aside from winning third grade math B, which was like a flash in the pan and gone, but I, it was still my glory days. But, but that, I, I got a lot of praise from that for being a Christian and serving and doing things. Then after that, I, I was very involved in, in church. I became a leader. I was involved in campus ministry. Poof, today, I'm a pastor. I'm a spiritual leader in a church. And over the years, I've been growing in my relationship with God, but I am still deeply tempted to put my source of worth in the praises of people, to think that that can quench my thirst. Deeply, deeply tempted by that. And, and, and if I'm honest, I'm tempted because I want people to say, Ulysses, you're a good pastor. Ulysses, you're a good speaker. Look, Ulysses, you have a big, successful church. Look, Ulysses, you're, you're, you're a smart person. Wow, you're somebody. I desire that. I still put a lot of my worth in that. And you know what it leads to? Anxiety. Stress. Physical manifestations of stress that come from a fear of failure. What if I bomb the message? What if the church fails? What if everybody leaves? Then people will say, oh, I guess Ulysses didn't have what it took. Guess he wasn't all that great of a path. Guess he wasn't that successful. And to me, that would be death. People saying, you are not somebody. Man, I still struggle with that. I still have anxiety. I still have stress and fears that I face from that. What about you? Brothers and sisters, are there things in your life where you feel that way? And, and you know, one, one thing you can do is you can, you can think about it right now. Just think about this for a moment. Are you right now at a place of tremendous peace in your life because you have this living water? Because you know that you're a child of God, you're loved, your present is secure, your sins are forgiven, you know where you will spend eternity, so that if all those things in this life didn't work out, that job didn't work out, you got laid off from your job, maybe people didn't praise you in the same way as they did before, those accomplishments were gone, they stopped coming, whatever it was that you put your hope in, where you put your 
your efforts in, would you still be at peace? Would you, are you able to say right now, I have everything I could desire. Though the earth fall away, I have Christ. I have living water. I have the love of God. My future is secure. I'm a child of God. I know who I am. Could you honestly, genuinely say that? If not, join the club. I think there's still work that we need to do in coming to Christ, in repenting of whatever it is that we said, I've, I've believed that this was something that can quench my thirst, Lord, but I confess that it is not. Would you help me to see that it is a lie that I will only become thirsty again if I drink from it? And help me to see, help me to seek this living water from you. I think if we're honest, we all have things right now today that we can say, Jesus, replace this physical water with the fullness of the Spirit. Quench my thirst in you. This woman here, as we come up to the last part here, she says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Some people say, oh, this woman is trying to change the subject. Jesus just read her mail. She feels really exposed. And she's like, so, you know, how about those warriors is basically what she's doing here. Well, let's talk theology, right? I don't think that's what she's doing here. I don't think she's trying to change the subject. This is too valuable an opportunity with a prophet, somebody who, who read your mail. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. She goes to a deeper question, a question that we should all ask about true worship of God, about what life is about. Who is God? How do we worship him? Who should he be? Who, who, how do we worship him rightly? Now, the Jews and the Samaritan differed on this. The Jews said, we worship here in Jerusalem. The Samaritans said, we worship up in Mount Gerizim. Why? Because the Samaritans said, only Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are the word of God. They don't recognize Joshua, Judges, Ruth, all the way down to Malachi. For them, the Bible, the Old Testament, is only the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. The, the Judeans, the Jews say, no, it's the whole thing. And this is why the Jews say, you know that part in, you know, the histories, the prophets, all that kind of stuff, like where David wanted to build a temple and God said, no, your son's going to build it. And it's going to be in Jerusalem. It's in Jerusalem. The Samaritans say, no, we don't recognize that stuff that happened. We just look at Genesis through Deuteronomy. It says to look for that place where you will worship God. Mount Gerizim looks like that place. I mean, Abraham built an altar there. That's where the, the blessings were pronounced upon Israel back in you know, Moses' time. I think we think that's the place where true worship should be. And they established that as the place of worship. And they disagreed about that ever since. Even to this day, there are still small numbers of Samaritans that worship by Mount Gerizim. They differed on this. What does Jesus say? Jesus said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. 
We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What is Jesus talking about here? Two super important things. If you're going to be a true worshiper of God, you need to worship in spirit and in truth. What does it mean to worship in spirit? It's about this new spiritual age that we're in, that Jesus talked to Nicodemus about. The Holy Spirit, the wind of the Spirit blowing wherever he desires. That this is a work of the Holy Spirit, salvation, the work of, of God. It is not just based upon the Old Testament law, but about a new birth, a new life that needs to happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. God is a spiritual being. He is spirit. And we need to worship him in a spiritual way. Jesus says it's no longer about location. It's not about Jerusalem. It's not about Mount Gerizim. That's all going to be in the past. It's not going to be about a location-specific way of worshiping God anymore. It's going to be a spiritual type of worship where the Holy Spirit will be with God's people wherever they are, not just in the temple. And that's so important, brothers and sisters, because worship in spirit doesn't just mean we come to the church to worship. Worship happens here in the church on Sundays. No, the church is the people of God. To worship in spirit means you worship on the way to church. In how you talk with your spouse when the kids are screaming in the back of the car as you're approaching church. It means how you behave and how you act after church. The type of person that you are at work, how you treat other people, how you treat your neighbors, how you treat your family members, how you speak to others, what you do when nobody else is looking. Monday through Saturday, not just Sunday. It is a worship that is in spirit, not just here in the church. It is a lifestyle. We all know that it doesn't work if you go to the gym, but as soon as you leave the gym and you get in your car, you pop open that bag of Doritos. You drive home munching. That doesn't work. Lifestyle, healthy lifestyle doesn't just happen in the gym. It's 24-7, 365 a year, unfortunately. Unfortunately, but that is true. Marriage isn't just about when I'm with my wife, Christine, and then when I'm apart from her, I'm a bachelor. She'd kill me, but I'm married to her. I'm her husband when I'm with her and when I'm outside, when I'm at the supermarket, when I'm going for a jog, when I'm going for a hike, when I'm anywhere else. It's a relationship that is ongoing. Jesus says a spirit, to worship God in spirit means it's not just a location thing. It's not just even a religious ritual thing alone. It is a lifestyle. It is a way of living where the spirit of God is within you. But this worship also needs to be in truth. This is a really good safeguard because... You know, some people may say, oh, Ulysses, I like that. Worship in spirit. I'm, that's me. I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. Have you heard that? That's a really popular thing to say nowadays, or at least it was 10 years ago. I'm, I'm not religious, meaning I'm against organized religion, but I'm very spiritual. I'm very spiritual. But 
That doesn't mean, worshiping in spirit means you could do whatever you want because Jesus says, worship is in truth as well. It doesn't mean you can go home and go, yeah, my worship is, I worship my cat. I worship my cat, you know, and I do me, you do you, and we worship in spirit, whatever way we want to. No, because worship has to be in truth as well. Think about what Jesus said to this Samaritan woman. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. Now, if we think about that for a moment, that's, that's pretty remarkable because these Samaritans even shared the same first five books of the Old Testament. They shared the Pentateuch. They differed on the history of the Proverbs and prophecies, but they had a lot in common. But Jesus says, you got it wrong. You got it wrong. The whole Old Testament, that is the word of God. Truth matters. Truth makes a difference. This is why the argument, all roads lead to heaven, is not an argument that Jesus makes. No. No. All roads don't lead to heaven. It's not just about being spiritual in whatever way you want to be spiritual. You need to worship in truth. Salvation is from the Jews, meaning the Messiah that came from Israel, Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. He is the only source of living water that you will ever find in this world. Not in any other religion, not in worldly accomplishment, not in money, but in only coming to Christ. Brothers and sisters, invite the worship team up at this time as we end. This woman finally gets it. She understands who Jesus is. And it says she left her water jar and went away into the town and told the people. Brothers and sisters, friends, is there there a water jar that you need to leave, that you need to recognize this morning? I'm still carrying this thing. This is still what I believe will quench my thirst, or I'm tempted to believe this, whatever it is. Isn't it time you left that water jar at the feet of Jesus and drank instead from the source of true living water?